So this morning we are continuing in our series through this wonderful, beautiful book of Psalms. And I, I hope um, that, that this series so far has been helpful, has been enlightening. And more than that, I hope that it has given a greater insight and maybe even a greater desire to want to love God. That is, that is, that is my hope as we are, are going through this book this morning and continuing the message through, these, through this wonderful book this morning. Um, it, it is just an incredible, incredible book. And I, I don't know if I've shared this. I'll share it again if I have, and I apologize for my repeating of this. For me personally, this has been one of the hardest series to prepare for. This has been one of the hardest messages through this book of Psalms, all these, all these messages that I've been able to share so far. This has been some of the hardest messages for me to share. Because, not because it's not, um, uh, you know, in terms of understanding who God is and, and that sort of thing, and not the theology of it. That's not what's hard about it. What's hard about it is that it is Hebrew poetry. That's what's hard about it. This is Hebrew poetry. This is a Semitic language, by the way. That it is written in. It is hard in our westernized English language, let alone our westernized thought process, to understand fully what it is that the authors of Psalms are sharing with us and to kind of grasp the, the best we can what it is that these authors are trying to communicate. And I shared this before, and I know I'll share it again here is that part of the reasoning is that it's hard for us to get behind the emotional um, kind of current that runs through psalms. That these aren't just, as I've shared before, theological statements about who God is. These aren't just about theological truths being shared. These are also trying to capture within it the emotional kind of uh, bent, the emotion that is also very much a part of these psalms. Let me say this. We, we probably, and I'm probably going to go on a limb on this, probably cry or get more emotional at the singing of songs than the hearing of a message, right? It's okay, you're not going to offend me. Um, I get it, that we get more emotional when we are singing songs. I mean, how many of you, when a song comes on, that, you know, if you're still listening to the radio, I don't listen to the radio much anymore. I'm all about podcasting, and I've got Spotify, and I, have, I, want to, I get to listen to stuff I want to listen to when I want to listen to it without any commercial interruptions, right? But nonetheless, I have a mix and all that kind of stuff, and so it's amazing that when there's songs that come on that I know I've chosen. I've made this playlist. I know these songs. These are my some of my favorite songs, and I have all sorts of playlists for my favorite songs. And by the way, in case you don't know anything about me, um, is I love movie scores. I love movie scores. In fact, in April, um, uh, my son, son-in-law, and we're joining my son-in-law's dad in California. We are going to go and watch the Batman movie, okay? The one with uh, uh, Robert Pattinson, right? The new one. I, Batman's okay. He's a rich vigilante who's, you know, just got to get, get his angst out. And so... Um, he's no Superman, but <laughs> we're going to go to California. We're going to watch this movie, but more importantly for me is they're going to be playing in live a full orchestra, the score to the movie while it's being shown. Ah, that's awesome. That's awesome. But it just, there are scores that move me and that there are probably songs that you could think of that move you. 
that might bring tears to your eyes, that might well up just a smile on your face. In other words, what is, trying to, what is so hard about communicating psalms is trying to get that emotional connection in this book. That is the hardest part for me in this whole thing. It really is. And so if there's any sense that you are getting some sense of the emotionalism out of this, that's great. That's great. Don't miss, even if I miss it, the emotional aspect of which these psalms are being written. Because it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I love how one pastor, Timothy Keller, frames the book of Psalms. He says this, Psalms, then, are not just a matchless primer of teaching. Do not think of the Psalms as just exclusively to teach us something. It's not. It's there, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong, but it is not exclusively for that purpose just to simply teach. But it is a medicine chest for the heart. A medicine chest for the heart and the best possible guide for practical living. I love that perspective on the book of Psalms. It is not just simply a book by which we can just go through and talk about theology, and, and I love to do that. Um, that's why I'm partly in what I am in, in the business of theology. But it is more than that. It is, it is a book that is meant to kind of rend our hearts, if you will to kind of break us and heal us and bring joy to us, happiness to us. And by the way, can I just, I'm going to say it. Um, it's okay to be happy, people. Happiness is not a bad thing, okay? We sometimes in America, and that's the only perspective I can talk from, I can't talk from other cultures because I don't live in those cultures, but I can talk in this culture, in my opinion, that in times here in America, that sometimes, particularly among Christians here in America, and particularly evangelical Christians here in America, and even more of that, conservative evangelical Christians in America, they don't want you to be happy, it seems like. Be happy. Laugh, for crying out loud. Laugh at yourself, right? Let me tell you a quick story, laughing at myself. At my house, um, we have child locks on our doors. Not because we have small children. We don't, but we have a puppy. <laughs> and we have these long handles on our doors. And our puppy has figured out how to get into the rooms. Because he can just jump up and use his paw and, and open up the door and walk in to any room. It reminds me of that scene from Jurassic Park with the velociraptors. That they locked him in a room and they said, well, unless they figured out how to open doors. And he figured out that the velociraptor knows how to open a door. It's the same thing with my puppy. Right? Knows how to open doors. So we put child locks on all the doors so that you can engage those child locks so the puppy can't get into any of the rooms because particularly in my wife's and my room, if he gets into there and particularly into the bathroom, if he gets a roll of toilet paper, he thinks he has hit the jackpot. <laughs> he brings that thing out and he plays with it. He tears it up and he just has a ball with it. He's literally hopping around, you know, um, as a deer just hops in just absolute joy. He's like Bambi who has now found this wonderful, beautiful thing. Well, the problem is, is that in one of the doors to my son's room, if you engage that child lock, you can't get out of the room because the, the handle doesn't turn. He's the only room that that happens to. Wonder why we put that one on that door, <laughs> right? So a, a couple of weeks ago, and it happened again this week, which is why I laugh at myself, is I went to go into my son's room to put something in there, 
and, and, I, and I just intuitively engaged the child lock. And I locked myself into the room. <laughs> right? And by the way, my son had called and said, Dad, I've locked my keys in the van. Can you come and rescue me? Right? So that's part of the reason I was in his room. I was looking for the spare key. I was looking all over the place. So I engaged the lock and locked myself in my son's room. No one is home. <laughs> my wife is in Florida. My daughter is at school. And my son is at, which I'll find out later, top golf instead of class with the keys locked inside the van. So all of a sudden now, I have to figure out how to get out of this room. And the only way I could do it is to take off the screen door and climb outside. And by the way, my back was really hurting me then, but I had to do it. And I climbed out, walked around, and I walk into the patio, and even the dog is surprised to see me coming that way. <laughs> so I go, and I try to open up the door, and I realize not only did I engage the child lock, but I must have locked the door on the inside, so I still can't get in the room. So I gotta go back around, climb in through the window, unlock the door, go around and un laugh. <laughs> I did it again this week. <laughs> Two days ago, I locked myself in my son's room and I had to climb out the window and surprise the dog again. <laughs> it's okay to laugh, church. Life can be funny sometimes. Life can be a joy. And I think God puts these examples in there at times for us to be able to laugh at ourselves. <laughs> And to be able to laugh about that there are good things in life just to be funny about. Isn't there? Laughter is just a wonderful thing. This morning, as we continue in this series, we are going to dig deep, hopefully, into this beautiful book to guide us and to help us in loving God more and more. And today's psalm specifically will guide us more into who God is. If I were to ask you a simple question, who is God, what would you say? What is, and, and let, me, let me finesse that question a little bit more. If I were to ask you, what is the essence of God? What would you say? Maybe you would say that the essence of God is love. That's a fair thing, right? God is love. Absolutely, no doubt. That's a good response, right? And maybe you might say God is just, or God is righteous, or whatever. That is a perfectly acceptable answer. This morning, though, in the psalm we are going to look at, there is perhaps an essence of God that might be the most important essence of who God is, more than even love itself, more than even righteousness itself, more than even justice itself, or whatever we want to say that God is. And today we are going to take a look at this perhaps most important essence of who God is, so important that many theologians, and I am not disagreeing with them, is they believe that out of this essence flows all of the other traits and qualities that we ascribe to God, that of love, that of jealousy, that of, of righteousness and justice, and all of these other qualities. That's how important this unique essence is. I named today's message, Our God Reigns. The unofficial title, because I didn't, couldn't change it because the bulletin was printed, and Dennis says it's too long of a title, Dan. You can't put that long of a title in there. So the unofficial title of today's message is this, the one quality that sets God apart. The one quality that sets God apart. This morning, we're going to look at that quality, and we're going to look at how this one quality 
sets God apart, not only from us, which is absolutely true, but from any other God that might exist or from any other living thing that exists. This one quality sets God apart. And not only will we know what that quality is today, but we will also discover how he, God, expresses this quality in three specific ways. Just to show how different he truly is. And my hope is, is that we will discover or maybe be affirmed in the fact that, man, we serve and we get to be a part of and we get to follow a phenomenally awesome God. A phenomenally awesome God. Just in the way he operates. Just in the way he operates. So let's go to Psalm 99 this morning. And I'm going to start reading the first three verses. And we'll pick apart what that quality is. And we'll also look at the first way that he expresses that quality. Here we go. Verse 1 of Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Okay, that was a cop-out for my title. The Lord reigns. Okay, that's not the point. Yes, he does. This is what God does. That's an action. The Lord reigns. This is what God does. This psalm is not describing yet who he is. He is describing what he does. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. And here's why. He is holy. That's the point of the psalm. How do I know this? Because the psalm, the author of this psalm is going to share he is holy. Not once, not twice, but three times. Repetition is a key component of Hebrew poetry. And the author of this psalm wants to make sure we understand that God is holy. He is holy. Now, real quick, holiness. Perhaps you know what that word means. That word holiness means to separate, to be pure. In some ways, it means to even to cut, which is a very interesting phraseology, to cut. Remember one of the very first signs that was given to Abraham for the people that God would collectively call his own was that all of the males would be circumcised, which means to cut, okay? That was a sign, if you will, of them being God's own. And so that is really kind of the aspect of holiness there and, and what holiness means. And often what we under, have to understand is that holiness above everything else shapes his attributes and that although God is love, it's not just any kind of love, it's a holy love. Although God also is a judge, he is a holy judge. And although God does reign, it is a holy reign. In other words, it is very different. It is separate from anyone that we might associate with what we think, how someone ought to love, how they ought to reign, how they ought to judge, or anything else. God does it differently. That's the aspect of holiness. God does it differently. And it's what is so fascinating is that all of us, even as we did today, when we stand before God in his full presence, I love the picture, and we sang a little bit of it today, in which the collective people who acknowledge who God is, who follow God, who love God, and collectively stand in his presence at the very end, we will sing what? 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holiness. That is perhaps the most important essence of who God is. Our God is different. Yes, our God reigns, but how does he reign? The author of this psalm shares it, and this brings up my first way that God expresses his holiness. God's holiness is expressed through his mercy to you and to me. How do I know this? Listen to what the psalm says here in the first three verses. It says this, the Lord reigns. Yes, he reigns. He sits on a throne. He is God. He is king. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. What is the author of psalm describing here? What is the throne on which God sits on? He sits between the cherubim. This is the Ark of the Covenant. In the top of the Ark of the Covenant where there were two angels whose wings were spread out and they would touch each other, in between that space there was where God would sit. And that space was known as the mercy seat. Mercy seat. In other words, our God is different. Our God reigns not in the way that we think a king ought to reign and that a king is doling out judgment and a king is doling out whatever he wants to dole out, that, our, that a king just does whatever a king wants to do because a king can do whatever a king wants to do. Our God is different from the way others reign. Our God reigns through mercy. Our God reigns through mercy. In fact, the word for mercy, it's interesting, the root word for mercy literally means womb. Like a mother's womb. In other words, there is this connection, there is this emotion of a mother birthing a child. And in some ways, God has that same connection with each and every one of us. That he has created us, he has birthed us, he has formed us, and he knows us. And there is that deep connection. And when he looks at us, he sees his children. And why would you ever want to punish for the sake of just because you can, or take advantage of just for the sake you can, your children. God reigns through mercy. That's his reign. Very different than how many might reign. In other words, God's fundamental posture towards us is that of mercy. Not of judgment. Of mercy. Of mercy. That is God's posture towards us, is one of mercy. Listen to what Hosea, chapter 11, verse 9 says. It says this, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim, again, which is a tribe. For I am God and not a man. I am different, God is saying. For I am God and not a man, where we, in our anger, might want to just destroy everything. Where we, in our anger might want to just hurt others, where we in our anger might cause unnecessary damage. God is not that. I am not a man, God says. The Holy One among you, I will not come against their cities. I will be merciful. I will be merciful. That's how God reigns. 
Pastor Timothy Keller says this, bottomless stores of mercy and unbending demands for righteousness almost never go together in any human being. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how in the world can someone be merciful and righteous at the same time? How can someone be merciful and at the same time dole out justice at the same time? Do you know what some of my hardest prayers are? Some of my hardest prayers are for those who perpetrate crimes that are horrific, whether it's a mass shooting or whatever else. And so when I'm praying, and I, 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 it's so easy for me, I'll be honest with you, to pray for the victims. And we should pray for the victims, right? We pray for the victims, those who have lost their lives, those who have been injured. We pray for their families as well. But it takes for me a conscientious effort to pray for the person or persons who committed the crime. And the hardest thing for me to pray for them is to pray, Lord Jesus, I pray that they will face justice. And at the same time, I pray that they will receive mercy. I can't make the two come together. Have you ever struggled like that? Have you ever struggled with the fact that for those who have committed, do you ever pray for those who have committed horrible crimes? And pray, Lord Jesus, please, please, may they face justice, but at the same time, may they receive mercy. That's hard. My mind can't wrap itself around those two concepts coming together, and yet God does it. Our temperament, Tim Keller says, inclines us one way or the other. We're all about righteousness or justice, or we're all about mercy. But these are perfectly combined in God. Perfectly combined in God. I can't make sense of it, but I'm grateful that God can, and that he is merciful and just at the same time. I can't make heads or tails of it, but he is. I think of these stories in, throughout Scripture. People like Jonah, who was this minor prophet who had the most successful conversion of any prophet in all of Scripture, even of Jesus himself, and he hated it. He got a whole city, and by that, a whole nation to repent, and he didn't want them to. Right? Do you remember that story? In fact, Jonah, so much so, was thinking that, oh, even though I gave that, and he gave a very basic message, repent or the city will be destroyed. Okay, that's good enough for us. He gave no details. He didn't want to go. He fled the other way. God said, oh, no, you don't. Merciful justice. He was saved by being swallowed by a fish, not a whale. A whale is not a fish. A whale is a mammal. Okay? By a fish spit out after three days being in there disgusting but it happened and he goes to Nineveh right merciful justice orients himself around there and even after preaching Jonah goes up high over the city on a hill there to await God's judgment all right God bring it I've got my popcorn got my drink let's bring it I'm still waiting for you to dole out your justice. I want to see this city destroyed. And in the meantime, he's like, I'm hot. And God, in his mercy, has a plant grow over him and provides him with some shade. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for this wonderful shade. And then the plant dies. And he becomes hot again. And he's like, curse you. God, how could you, make, how could you, how could you do this to me? And, and, and God has to have a little lesson with Jonah. He says, listen, I had mercy on you. I had mercy on you. 
Why don't you think I shouldn't have mercy on all of those people in that great city? I love them too. That's God. God reigns, and the way that he expresses how he reigns is that he is merciful. He is so different. He is so different from us, isn't he? Here's another way that he expresses his holiness. God's holiness is expressed through his law for you and for me. Verses 4 through 5 says this, The king is mighty and he loves justice. Yes, God loves justice. Hear me. God loves justice. God is just. You have established equity, which is integrity, which is order, which is truth. He has established these things, and he judges by those things. Okay? And he goes on, and he says this, In Jacob you have done what is just and right, Jacob being the nation of Israel. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, because what? He is holy. He is different. God has this law. God has this law by which he judges right and wrong. God has this law in which he judges what is, what is righteous and what is not righteous. God has this law, and he has given us this law. He has given us this law. It's called the Ten Commandments, and he's told us, this is how I want you to live. But here's the thing that God knows. We're going to fail. We're going to fail at it. We're gonna, and it doesn't matter. I mean, the Pharisees had a very unique way of, of, of trying to you know, help us live this law. Let's add more laws to it. Let's add more. It was meant to clarify, right? It was meant to clarify. Let's add more laws to it. And if you could do all these laws, you're good. Here's the problem with that. We can't. And God knows it. God knows it. Romans shares it very well. Each and every one of us has fallen short of his glorious standard. We can never meet it. And God because of the fact of, that he is holy, because of the fact that he is different, when we break his law, it isn't the end of the world for us. It just isn't. Let me give you an example. Exodus 32. Another great story. This, this passage kind of troubles me as well. But nonetheless, Moses comes to Aaron and says, Aaron, Joshua and I have got to be gone for a little bit. I've got to go up to Mount Sinai and meet with God. He's going to be writing some laws. While I'm gone, you're in charge. Okay? You're in charge. If there's any disputes, you are the one who has to settle it. Okay? So Moses says, all right, Joshua, let's go. He goes, and it's not as though he can go up there right away. He's got to wait six days just to become purified so that he is acceptable enough to even go into God's presence. And only Moses can go. Joshua's got to stay behind and wait. And Moses is gone for 40 days. That's a long time. 40 days. The people of Israel are restless. And they come to Aaron. They say, Aaron, hey, your brother isn't here yet. He is gone still. He probably took off, or maybe worse, God killed him. So now who's going to lead us? Who is going to lead us? And Aaron says, well, I can't, I can't do it. But I tell you what, I'll, bring me all your, all, your, all your gold jewelry. Bring it all. And so they do. The people of Israel bring all their gold jewelry. Aaron fashions it into a what? A golden calf. And then he presents it to the people of Israel and says, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Worship the calf. Now, it's not a big stretch from where they came from where there was a lot of idol worship in Egypt. And so this was familiar. This was comfortable. This helped to bring peace to the people who were in angst because Moses wasn't back yet. So they worship this golden calf. 
Moses is with God, and God says, Moses, you better get down. There's a problem there, and I'm getting pretty angry at my people. You better get down there pretty quick. Moses comes down. He sees what they're doing. They're dancing. They're singing, all this kind of stuff around this golden calf. He takes the tablets that he's now been given by God, and he throws them, and he breaks them in a symbol that in this one act, you have broken all the Ten Commandments. But here's the interesting thing that Moses does. He takes the golden calf, he burns it, and he takes the ashes from it, and fine ashes, and he puts it in water, and he has the Israelites drink it. Why? Why does he do this? They broke his law, keep in mind. Why does he now all of a sudden take the golden calf, pound it into fine dust, put it into the water, and have the Israelites drink it. There's many theories as to why he does this, but perhaps one of the best ones that I've come across is that it was an acknowledgement of guilt. It was an acknowledgement of guilt and an opportunity to repent or to remain in their guilt, recognizing the foolishness of what they did or suffer the consequences in other words, either one of two things. Either they could recognize that this idol meant nothing, and now it is just simply dust. And even worse than that, because I have ingested it, now it'll just simply, I, the idol's not even worth it anymore. Or you could think, because I've ingested it now, the idol spirit is within me, and now I will continue to worship this idol because now the idol spirit is within me. And so they were given a choice. Either you repent and give up this idol worship, or you go ahead and continue in this idol worship. And those who did, they suffered the consequences. And those who didn't were repented and were saved. In other words, through one man's actions, Aaron, an entire nation was guilty. And through one man's actions, Moses, an entire nation could be saved. Sound familiar? In other words, even when we break God's law, it is not the end of the game. We can repent and God can say, let's do this again. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we get a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, you name it, all of these chances. That's how God expresses his holiness is in his law, even specifically when we break it. Here's the last one and perhaps the most important. God's holiness is expressed through his relationship with you and with me. Verses 6 through 9 says this, Moses and Aaron were among the priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. Lord our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. He is holy. And guess what he gets? Because he is holy, it's not as though we can never approach him. It's not as though we can never get to know him. No, that's just the opposite. Because he is holy, instead of saying, guess what, you are not to be in my presence at all, and, and, and instead of saying, you know what, you can't be with me because you are sinful, broken, you know, people, instead of that, he says, guess what, you can be holy as I am holy. In fact, he says it, be holy as I am holy. In other words, we too can be set apart. In, in other words, we too can, can, can be in God's presence 
Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he has done. We are holy not because of who we are, but because of who God is. We are holy. That's beautiful. In other words, we can be like God. Not be God, but be like him in the way that we act, in the way that we function, in the way that, in, in whom we worship, which is God himself. We can be like him. We can be holy. First Peter Chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, gives us an idea of how we can remain and become holy. He writes the following, For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. He's quoting Leviticus, by the way. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. In other words, us being followers of Jesus Christ will mean that we will live differently than the rest of the world. One pastor, I think, put it very succinctly. If a non-believer can't tell the difference between your life and their life, there's a problem. If a non-believer can't tell the difference between their life and your life, there's a problem. We are called to live differently. In reverent fear. We are called to live as people who follow God because we do. We are called to live as followers of God, as his children, because we are. And he goes on, Peter writes this, For you know that it, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, golden calf, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but how the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope are now in God. God still invites us to this day to be holy, because he is holy. To be set apart as he is set apart, to be different as he is different. I don't know about you, but I am grateful that I don't get to sit on a judgment seat. I think there's real wisdom in the fact when God says, do not judge, lest you be judged. I think there's real wisdom To know that our God is different. That he can do things far better than I ever could. I think there's real wisdom in acknowledging the fact that I could never reign the way God reigns. I could never give a law or enforce it in the way that God can. I could never have the kind of relationship that God provides. I just couldn't do it. I'm not God. I am not him. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful that he is holy, that he is separate, that he is different, that he is not like any other God or person or anything else on this earth or in this universe. He's different. And this morning, he calls us to be different. He calls us to be like him, to be holy. He calls us 
to embrace what he has given us. And yes, we will fail. Yes, we will not be able to necessarily do things perfectly. God knows this. And that's what makes him holy because he says, guess what? When you fail, I'm there. When you fail, I'll forgive and restore. I'm different. I'm different. Maybe this morning, you may have forgotten as a follower of Jesus that you are holy. You are. You and I are different than the rest of the world. And that shouldn't give us premise or reasons or grounds by which to boast or gloat. But rather just the opposite. It should give us reasons to be humble and to do things and to be people that do things differently. Truly. That when we see people who are in need, we give. That when we see people who have sinned greatly, we come alongside and say, brother, sister, I know what it's like. I know what it's like. And I want to tell you about this God who has forgiven me and has restored me. He has called us to be holy because he is holy. And maybe you've forgotten that fact that you are holy. I hope today you will embrace that once again. You are holy. And this morning, maybe you're here today and you had no clue that you could be holy. You had no clue that you could have a relationship with God. You had no clue that this God would want to have a relationship with you. I want to tell you today, he does. He deeply, deeply desires it. He died for it. He died for it. And so my hope and my prayer is that if that is where you are today, that you will embrace Jesus. And that collectively together, with shouts of joy and excitement, with all the emotion we could muster, we can truly sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Amen. Father, I am grateful that you are holy. And I admit that I have always viewed in many ways your holiness as this barrier that certainly separates you from me, and that is true. And yet at the same time, it is an invitation to come into your presence, to be with you. I pray this morning, Jesus, for every single person here that we would embrace the truth that you are holy and yet you desire a relationship with us. That you are holy and yet you are merciful. That you are holy and yet you are just. Thank you, Jesus, for calling us to be holy as you are holy. I pray that we would embrace that today in all of its facets, that we would be your people and you would be our God. It's your name that we pray. Amen.